This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNXRadio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. Both the CDC and the FDA starting to get serious in their preparations for vaccine distribution. Getting millions of doses out will be no easy task. So how will it be done? How bad is the coronavirus outbreak in the upper Midwest right now? Well, there are at least 900 sick at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. Uh, 900 hospital staffers, not patients. Speaking of hospitals, new research out showing some medical centers are marking up our bills like crazy, even in the midst of this pandemic. Oh, that's like the $9 million aspirin. (laughs) Plus, the pandemic was politicized in America, and our health care workers are paying that price by experiencing psychological trauma that they will have to carry for the rest of their lives. And as Australia heads back into a strict lockdown, there are reports of the virus behaving in some new, strange ways. Also, we will head to New York City, where schools are shut down for in-person learning, and parents are not Please. But how about a night on the town? If you're there, steak dinner, glass of wine with a side of a COVID test. One restaurant requiring everybody to take a rapid test before they sit down. Good with mushroom sauce, by the way. <laughs> Spinach. <laughs> Two key meetings coming up within the next week or so at the FDA and CDC with a singular goal in mind, getting ready to ship mass quantities of new COVID vaccinations out to the entire country. Dr. Julie Swan, Department Head of Industrial Systems Engineering, North Carolina State University, has worked with the CDC and the Red Cross in distribution efforts, so this is an incredible undertaking. Where do you even start? (laughs) It is definitely a a tough problem for uh, state and local health departments and their their partners all across the system. You know, fortunately, one uh, good thing is that in 2009, we distributed over 100 million doses of a new vaccine for the novel H1N1 virus. So that allowed us to test out the systems for pandemic response to some extent. So how does this work, especially initially with uh, presumably the first two vaccines out of the gate, the Pfizer and Moderna one. We're not talking, or or are we, about people going to their doctor's office and saying, okay, okay, doc, I'm here, give me the shot. It's not going to be like that, is it? Well, certainly not in the beginning. Uh, We think that initially the vaccine will be targeted to specific populations who are at higher risk of exposure or severe outcomes, like medical workers caring for COVID-19 patients or people in nursing homes. Uh, Eventually, there will come a point where you could go to one of several different locations to get the vaccine, just as we see for diagnostic testing for for COVID-19. So you might go to a pharmacy, a clinic, a, a county health clinic, or your doctor. The Pfizer vaccine and the incredibly cool, cold temperatures it needs to be kept at, that presents another problem, too. So that would have to go to certain places where you can get to that level of, you know, below zero or I guess hospitals, right, first? Well, it certainly does have to be kept very cold at negative 70 degrees Celsius. That's really cold. Um, It is being shipped in a special box that will have dry ice and can be topped off a couple of times. And then after that, you have an additional five days refrigerated. So there are a couple of options uh, for for getting it um, out out into the arms of people. But it is going to be harder and it definitely is, is harder in places that have less infrastructure. How is it determined 
whether or not, because it seems, at least from the data that, that I've read so far, which isn't much, because uh, not much has been published, really, but the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine seem to have the same efficacy for the same demographic groups, pretty much the same side effect profile. So what and who determines who gets what? I mean, whether you get the Moderna one or the Pfizer one, or how does that decide it? Well, there'll be a couple more things. Of course, the data is still being reviewed, and we could still see some differences as more information comes out. So are they both equally effective in populations above 65? Are they both equally effective in people who have diabetes? We don't know that yet. Um, but so part of the decisions will be made uh, based on generally states are deciding where these vaccines will be sent. And it will be not only the populations that can be served in that location, but potentially also the infrastructure in that location. And in addition, there'll be some sent through commercial pharmacies directly from the federal government. And then timing and tracking, too, right? Because if you need two doses, you got to make sure you get all those cold ones out before the clock runs out on those for the people to get them in time to get them so it's not all a wash in the end. You got it. Uh, 21 days for one of them, 28 days for the other. Now, depending on how much vaccine is available, states and, and providers could choose to go ahead and give out the complete set of doses they get, anticipating that there'll be a second round to help fulfill that second dose. You do also need to get the same vaccine you got the first time. So there will be specialized reminders to help people keep that straight. I don't want to mention names, but we all know there are some people that manage to pay a lot of money to, say, schools to get their kids in. Are there safeguards to make sure that people don't jump way ahead of the line because maybe they have enough money to be able to jump ahead of the line? Great question. Um, what we what we do know is that for the H1N1 vaccine distribution, there were also priority groups, different ones because it was a different disease. And at that point, there may have been a few cases here and there of someone jumping the line. But for the most part, we did not see that in a in a large way. Dr. Julie Swan, Department Head, Industrial Systems Engineering, North Carolina State University. Doctor, thanks. You've probably heard about coronavirus cases starting to overwhelm hospitals in the upper Midwest of the country. But what happens when the staff itself of a hospital becomes overwhelmed with COVID infections? That is the case at the famed Mayo Clinic Hospital Network, where over 900 staffers are sick with COVID-19 over just the last 14 days. Dr. Connor Loftus, gastroenterologist at the clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Surprising, you'd think if any place would figure out how to contain the virus, it'd be the Mayo Clinic, but what's happening there, doctor? Yeah, thanks so much for the opportunity and thanks to your listeners for, for tuning in here. Um, First, first thing I would say, even though we have a large number of our employees who are out sick and we have, you know, 900 healthcare workers diagnosed with COVID-19 over the past 14 days and 1,500 of our staff are out altogether, we, we still have a very robust staff at the Mayo Clinic. We are still here to care for our patients. So if we've got sick patients and they come to our, they come to our emergency rooms, we are here for them. Here, here's the issue, you know, we can control what we can control at work and our workplace is safe. Uh, our employees are not acquiring the COVID-19 infection at work, now, nor are our patients getting it from our employees. But when our employees go home and they take off their mask and they socialize and they go out to perhaps bars and restaurants, that's where the problem is rising. And 93% of the infections have been community acquired. So. That's where we encourage everybody 
both in our immediate area and across the country to do the basic things. Wear your mask, social distance, be very careful, practice excellent hand hygiene. So the reason is that we don't have control of what's going on in the community and encourage everybody to pitch in in that space so that we can all defeat this together. So is this kind of like a two-pronged thing? Number one, you tell the staffers maybe you don't go out as much. Maybe we shouldn't be going to the restaurants or, you know, limits the groups. But then it's also on everybody else, like you said, because if people aren't wearing masks or they're doing too much, it's going to get around anyways. And you've got more chances the more you are out. Exactly right. And, you know, Governor Walls here in Minnesota just, uh, you know, put effectively a stay-at-home order for the next four weeks between, you know, Friday, December 18 to to four weeks later to bars and restaurants, uh, again, scaled back to takeout only, uh, gyms being closed down. So uh, the the governor uh, and the authorities are helping, and we are certainly encouraging our staff during the holiday period, Thanksgiving, to social distance to, you know, if you have or typically involve a bunch of friends over, please, you know, scale that back, social distance, mask, be very, very careful with your interaction. So we all have a part to play in this and we will defeat it. There's no doubt, but um, we need to be very, very careful with the holiday period coming up, especially. I I am curious, doctor, of that 900 or so staffers, uh, are we talking about what, mostly doctors, nurses? What, What kinds of employees are are getting this in community spread situations. Yeah, it's really all, all, you know, all of the above. So all members of the staff are affected, you know, uh, providers, so con- cons- doctors, nurses, uh, allied health staff. And um, so many, many groups are affected, but we're calling on what's great to see in this circumstance is the teamwork and the response and the call to action by other members of the staff. So we've great flexibility, um, not only within our organization in the Midwest, but across our enterprise. As many of you know, we've got the the Midwest, but we've also got facilities in Florida and Arizona. We're connecting virtually with our colleagues in Florida and Arizona. They're providing virtual help, virtual care. uh, And so it's been an amazing team effort to overcome this. But in short, uh, we, we don't have control either over who gets the, the infection. It's yeah. all, yeah, I all get aspects that. and all members of the staff. But I'll tell you why I asked that question specifically, because I'm not going to let you off the hook that easily. Uh, shouldn't doctors and nurses in particular, especially ones that work nowadays around any facility that is loaded with cases of COVID, as I'm sure the, the Mayo Clinic is, shouldn't they of all people know better? Uh, they they certainly do know they, they they know what they should do. Uh, when people go home, we don't have control over the home environment. Um, kids coming home from schools, uh, household contacts represent a significant portion of the community spread. So if you've got a kid coming home from school and they're five years old, you got to care for that kid. Or if you've got an elderly uh, person in a nursing home, you need to go visit them. So I I agree with you. Yes. Uh, we need to be. We all need to be very, very cognizant. But we don't have ultimately full control over everything everybody does all of the time when they're outside of their workspace. We are educating our employees as best we can um, to be very safe, wear the mask, social distance, hand hygiene, um, and that's as much as we can do. And we encourage that of all of our staff. Thankfully, people are doing it, but um, you, you still will have some breakthrough issues as we're seeing. Dr. Connor Loftus, gastroenterologist, Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Medical care in this country is a for-profit business, so it is no surprise that hospitals mark up the bills for the patients, but it's the amount of the markups 
that can be truly shocking. And it shows how much in profit hospitals are grabbing from us every time we step foot inside of one. New study from National Nurses United on this. Jeannie Ross, national president of National Nurses United. So what'd you find? What kind of numbers? Well, um, hospitals can charge the most expensive of them up to 18 times their costs for medical services. So that means if you would, say, have $100 in your total cost, they would charge you $1,800. Now, of course, I'm sure hospitals are going to argue, well, the patients don't pay that. You know, we, we bill that to insurance because there's some weird way that, that the medical profession bills insurance. And we get a fraction of that. Is that true or no? Oh, no, that's not true. I know that is what they say. Uh, they, they claim that it's just a list price, a place to begin bargaining, for example, with the insurance companies. But if that's the case, again, why do you have to start so high? Because they know that the more they charge, the more the insurance companies will pay. And then what do insurance companies do? They pass the cost to employers and they pass it to their employees and to individuals and families. Um, so we end up with costlier premiums and deductibles and co-pays. I would suspect also that this has been a sliding scale up over the last however many years because businesses that make profits like to keep making profits. Oh, yes. Their, their profits have more than doubled in the past 20 years. What about California, where we are? Uh, California hospitals, especially in the Los Angeles area, many of them are fairly expensive. Uh, do you have any figures on on how much they're kind of padding the accounts? Well, I know that the largest corporation is HCA, and of the 100 most expensive hospitals, uh, they own or operate 95 of them, and many of them are in California. What does this do to people when they, they know this or they suspect this or they just can even ballpark what they're going to get into in terms of going and seeking medical care when you need it, especially right now? I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Right. And and so it's it's even worse than what we knew was going on with our patients to start with. It's they can't afford, even if they do have insurance, they can't afford the cost of the premiums, the, the co-pays, uh, the deductibles. So it leads people to not coming in to get care when they need. That's going to be especially dangerous if you're having symptoms of COVID and you decide to stay home and assume maybe I'll be lucky and it'll just be a bad cold or the flu. So people have been choosing between rent and food for some time. Now, many, many are without not just insurance, but obviously their jobs. Uh, so they're short on money. It leads them to even uh, be less likely to come and seek medical care. And, and, and to be really clear about this, a lot of hospitals, as you know, are, they, they say anyway, they're not-for-profit hospitals, but that doesn't mean they don't make a lot of money. No, no, it certainly doesn't. In fact, I live and work out of... Um, um, Minneapolis, Bloomington, Minnesota. And in Minnesota, we have all not-for-profit. They operate the same way. So what's to be done, if anything? What can you do? Well, you can complain. <laughs> you, can keep, you can keep putting out this information. We at National Nurses United have been doing this for almost 20 years now. 
And the information is available to anyone. You can do your own study. You will come out with the same um, results that we do. It just points out, especially during the times of this pandemic, that we really need a system that's going to work for everybody, that keeps the rest of us safe because people seek care when they've got something contagious. It keeps those patients safe because they are going in when they need to instead of when they become really chronic. And the only system that's like that is the one that we call Medicare for All, covering everybody and making sure that we all get the same decent level of care. Is there any way that a potential patient can find out beforehand from a hospital how much they're going to end up having to pay for what they're doing? Because I know from personal experience, the answer, at least for me, has been no, but maybe you have some tips. Well, I, you know, patients do ask us that. And whenever they ask me or a family member asks, I say, you know, check all your information. That's very, very detailed, but it's it's hard to find that information in their written paperwork or on-screen uh, work. But even when they've been told what to expect, there's all kinds of hidden fees and charges. Hospitals make uh, agreements with businesses like physicians group, doctors groups. And so people end up getting hit even when they think they're not. You mentioned where you are, obviously, cases rising. How are your nurses doing with, with this right now and then with months ahead in terms of a surge? Well, I think we as nurses have learned to take things one shift at a time, one day at a time. It, it's very, very hard. It's very disheartening. But it isn't because uh, this has to be never-ending, because we know it doesn't. It's disheartening because uh, our government and our, our employers aren't taking our protection as seriously as they could. So for the general public who's being told, you know, you have individual freedom not to wear masks, not to um, physically distance yourselves, all those kinds of things work against us nurses and other health care givers so that we are put in a really tough bind. And it, it does get uh, pretty depressing at times. Jeannie Ross, National President, National Nurses United. Jeannie, thanks for talking to us. COVID-19 spiking everywhere, putting an incredible strain on our healthcare system as a whole, but also on healthcare workers as individuals and human beings. They are dealing with a lot of illness and death and, and heartbreak, while also seeing a portion of the population not wanting to adhere to rules that would help make their job a bit easier. Dr. Perry Hakitis, dean of the Rutgers School of Public Health, he talked with KYW's Matt Leon about the impact the pandemic's having on the mental and the emotional health of all those healthcare workers. You're talking your doctors and your nurses, and how big a concern with you is the long-term effects Oh, what these folks are going through. I mean, they're you're wired a certain way to deal with death and mm -hmm. to deal with stress and all, but we're seeing things on a level that we haven't seen. It's constant. Uh, what is your concern about the, the overall mental health of people in the health industry at this point? 
So front frontline healthcare workers are being traumatized every single day that they go to work. They are working at, at, at long hours. They are working to try to save lives, often not saving lives. They are experiencing the trauma of having to deal with patients who can't be with their families and then patients dying. They're facing the trauma of not really being able to help people because they don't have the tools to help people. And so there is a huge burden on the mental health of those folks. And let me draw a parallel. You know, at the onset of the AIDS epidemic in the first 15 years, healthcare providers experienced the same sort of trauma. And what we saw afterwards is that many of those healthcare providers burned out. They developed their own drug addictions and other health, other mental health problems. Um, some of them died at much younger ages than they should have died. So the trauma is long lasting. It's not only in the moment, but in the long term for these people. For the nurses, the doctors, the other individuals who are working in, in the hospitals and the other healthcare facilities are being bombarded every day. And it's taking their, there's no doubt, it's taking a toll on their physical well being and their emotional well being. And to that point, we are very big in our society of putting signs in our front lawn that we support healthcare workers and applauding and stuff like that. But when it comes to the actual stuff that will make a difference, we don't seem to care as much. How much does that, we've been screaming at people to social distance, to wear a mask, and there's a segment of the population that just is not paying attention, that sure. is proactively not doing it. Where, is that another level on top that these people see this and so much, these healthcare workers see so much of this could be prevented if people just paid attention and cared? So let me, there's lots of answers to these questions, this question you just posed. The first one I would say is that, yeah, no, I've, I've heard healthcare providers and I've read, you know, on tweets and other places, healthcare providers saying, don't bang your pots and pans for me, just wear a mask, right? Because they want us to do the right thing. But to your point about not wearing a mask, I think we have two kinds of people here, right? We have the people who will not wear a mask because the Trump administration has made this mask a political enemy. And so as a result, people um, um, view the mask as some kind of weakness and some kind of um, irreverence to the current president of the United States, right? At the expense of anybody's well-being and with, you know, neglecting any scientific data whatsoever. Number two are the people who are just really tired at this point, right? So look, there every single moment, I just ran out to my front door here in Newark I went to the front door, the UPS guy was there. I ran out, I forgot my mask, I ran back to get my mask, right? So it's like, it requires an extra level of thinking. Like, you know, so it's winter, you need to, you now you have your keys, your coat, your scarf, your gloves, you need your mask too. And so the combination of the, the naysayers, the ones who are neglecting science and, you know, I think actually committing a crime, quite frankly, by not wearing a mask and spreading the disease are contributing to the perpetuation, but also people are just getting tired. And behavioral maintenance, as we know, is extremely difficult for people. People cannot consistently do things for a long period of time, whether it be 14 days of antibiotic or you know, five days of a week of exercise or eating well every day, it's hard for people to do. All of these, these factors come together to create the situation that we're in right now. Are there things we can do I don't know how you fix people not wanting to believe in science, but specifically right. with the, the mental well-being of these people on the front lines, are there steps we can take to try to prevent these people from deciding it's not worth it or wanting to walk away? Are there programs, you know, things sure. that we can do to try to 
push this in the right direction to at least make sure the people that are, you know, destroy are, you know, hammering right. themselves trying to save people that we can do something for their mental well-being? I mean, ideally, somebody who is on the front lines would be able to take a break from being on the front lines and be able to get go to their families, go get their social support, go get any like we would could provide like, you know, in-service treatment for people. Unfortunately, because we have been so bad at handling this disease and by we, I mean, the federal government has been so bad at handling this disease. We can't afford that right now. And so I think that healthcare providers for the next few months time are going to be completely tasked with trying to keep people alive. And there's going to be very little room for being able to take that break. What I do, what I do hope, however, is the best, the best thing that we could provide them is, you know, um, to healthcare providers, the best thing we could provide them is, you know, our, our maintained behavior and our controlling the disease and our spreading the word that masks matter and washing hands matter. But, you know, in the absence of that or in the absence of a really effective vaccine, which, by the way, I understand the vaccine is, um, you know, there's, there's efficacy. It's going to take a long time before it's rolled out. Um, we're going to we're going to have a healthcare uh workforce that's going to be overly exhausted and so you know send them food send them send them send them candy send them good wishes like you know give them emotional support if there are people in your family who are part of the of that group and just realize that it's going to be really hard to take a break right now when we come back the virus is acting strangely in the land down under plus in new york city you can go to get a shot of whiskey at a bar get a haircut at a barber shop But schools, oh, no, 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 off limits. Starting today, South Australia has begun implementing what could be the world's toughest, strictest, meanest COVID lockdown. People in the city of Adelaide, they're not even allowed to exercise outside or walk their dogs. That is how seriously they are taking this. But but there's something else noteworthy about this most recent spread of coronavirus in Australia. The virus appears to be behaving differently. Dr. Ali Nouri, molecular biologist, president of the Federation of American Scientists. Doctor, what do we know about this, the possibility of having another strain in Australia? Thanks for having me. Uh, That's right. So when it comes to the virus mutating, generally, you look at two different things. Uh, You look at whether or not that mutation might make it more or less transmissible or contagious. And then you also look at whether or not those mutations might make the virus more virulent. Uh, causing more severe symptoms, for example. Uh, What we saw with this COVID, the virus that causes COVID-19, was that early in the epidemic, um, it obtained a mutation um, that has now become quite widespread. So this mutation is the one that is circulating in the U.S. and really the rest of the world at the moment. And what we see is that the mutation does give the virus the ability to infect cells more efficiently. So so, so that really points to the fact that it's becoming more contagious, it's become more transmissible. And people have done studies in animals, for example, showing that animals that are transmitting this new mutant form are actually able to transmit it earlier during the course of an infection, then they can transmit the original, older form, if you will. So, so, so it, it 
definitely looks like it's become more contagious. What it hasn't, uh, what it hasn't become is more virulent. So the disease appears to be the same, but it does seem to be more transmissible. And, and, and that's really why all the more important to underscore the importance of wearing masks, the importance of distancing, and as we go into the holidays, the importance of ventilating homes with fresh air. But what do you make of the uh, Australians saying that they're seeing, yes, more transmission, and again, they're saying that they're also seeing it uh, spread through touching of contaminated contaminated uh, surfaces, but they're also saying that they are seeing asymptomatic cases, and they're not seeing it uh, manifest itself in quite the same way as it has in the past. Right. So, so as as you know, one of the one of the difficulties with this virus has been that it can be transmitted asymptomatically. In fact, something around half of the new cases have been come f- coming from people who don't exhibit symptoms. Um, and, and, and that's really the reason why it's so difficult to contain the virus, because normally with a, with, with, with a viral uh, outbreak, you get sick and then you start transmitting it. And when people get sick, they tend to stay home. And so they're not likely to transmit it to other people, right, because they're staying home and resting. This virus has always been different, right, in the sense that about half of the new cases are coming from people who are just walking around and they feel great and they feel healthy, and yet they're transmitting the virus. I think what the Australian um, medical professional uh, professionals are saying is that it's looking like it might be transmitting even earlier during the course of your infection. Uh, so, so, so you know. Initially, this virus was transmitting, say, around day four after you got exposed to it and you got infected by it. It could very well be that the new strain could be transmitting, say, day two or day three after you're getting exposed to it. And that really gets to the more contagious nature of it. But again, this is this this particular phenomenon of increased transmissibility is already something we're already dealing with in the U.S. So so the virus that is circulating widely in the United States and has been for a long time is the one that has picked up that mutation that make that that makes it more transmissible. For us, that's not a new thing. Um, but but you know, I to your point about uh, the transmission through touching surfaces. That was interesting. I mean, I, I saw that in that uh, Bloomberg uh, report. However, I have not seen the science uh, that points to that fact. In fact, what we have seen over the course of this pandemic is that the primary mode of infection is through inhalation. And again, this this really underscores the importance of masks distancing and ventilating homes with fresh air. Yeah, doing all the things we're supposed to do. Dr. Ali Nouri, molecular biologist, president of the Federation of American Scientists. Doctor, thanks. New York City restarting its COVID restrictions as of today. Public schools are closing down, going all remote through at least the start of December, but with impressively low infection rates among teachers and students. New York City administrators have managed to keep schools pretty safe. Mark Traeger is a New York City councilman, chairs the council's education committee, is himself a former public school teacher. So you get a haircut, you can get a drink, but you can't go to school. 
You could also get a shot at whis of whiskey at a bar, and you can go bowling, but you cannot send your child to school. That is correct. So then I send my kid to the bar. And in fact, that's what some moms <laughs> were tweeting yesterday, right? Saying, well, I'll just drop them off at a restaurant because parents are not pleased about this, at least many of them. How do you feel about the differences that we just laid out? So I, I just want to you know, provide some context. You know, uh, the, the mayor of our city says this is you know, the best that we can do. I would argue this is the best that he can do, not the best that we can do. Uh, over 60,000 students in New York City today woke up to no device. Uh, and this is over half a year since our, our system moved to, to remote from March. Um, over 60,000 families still don't have adequate internet service. So not everyone is participating in remote learning. Uh, I also want to say, you know, for the record, which I'm sure is an issue as well in, in California, that there are families with, with wealth and money that are paying for private learning pods and paying for private teachers to educate their children five days a week in person. And I represent a working class, you know, district where, where families live check to check. Many folks lost their job. They can't afford to do that. So they rely on government to be to be the great equalizer to make sure that we provide basic services for our families. So I, very quickly, and I'll turn it back, I shared a plan back in, in July with the mayor and his team to provide a sense of safety and equity, uh, that we would have a phased-in approach, prioritize our early childhood elementary school children, children with special needs, our homeless children, give them the option of five days a week in person with the option to opt out while keeping high school uh, re re remote. And I'll tell you, um, with the mayor's hybrid model, which he now has shut down, many of our high schools are largely empty because we have such a severe teacher shortage where many kids who were promised in-person instruction were only getting virtual study hall, where an adult was just watching them as they were Zooming with their teacher from home. Think about all the space we could use from high schools to program services for young children and, and, for, and for our most vulnerable kids. So this has been a, a failure, quite frankly, from day one. So here's what I guess I, I don't understand. Now, look, I mean, there have been some cases around the world of, of schools where uh, there have been you know, minor outbreaks. But by and large, in places, Europe in particular, uh, the infection rate has been, especially in the lower grades, uh, low to almost non-existent. So what is the thinking behind, let me rephrase that question, is there thinking behind closing the schools in New York? It is not clear to anyone, maybe except for the mayor, uh, what thresholds he created, he made. These are all self-made. I don't know what scientists or folks he spoke with. Um, uh, this 3% threshold, quite frankly, I don't think... No one really knew what he was talking about. But what I could tell you is that back in March, we had a higher infection rate, but we still opened up what, what we called regional enrichment centers or rec centers. And I think California, many school districts opened similar things where we provided emergency childcare services for children of essential workers. What I'm arguing for is we need to go beyond childcare because as a former teacher, I'll tell you, if a student misses a couple of days of instruction, that's a lot. But if kids are experiencing months of interrupted, disrupted education, that is a generational impact, no longer temporary. So we need to have a plan, not just for child care, but for actual education for our most vulnerable children. So he's saying, I hope it doesn't last too long. Maybe we'll get them back soon, hopefully. Is there actually a plan 
as you know it to bring the kids back if you can get them back? Or is this just kind of shut it down and then we'll figure this one out later too? Unfortunately, what you just said is the, is the reality here in New York. Uh, the mayor today admitted during his press conference that he did not really have a plan B. And so he is promising within the next couple of days to share a different plan. Now, I, according to my sources at, at City Hall, they're now you know, reviewing parts of my proposal that I shared with them back in July about a phased-in approach pr- providing five days a week in person for our youngest children, our most vulnerable children, but this should have been worked out months ago and not, not you know, two, three months already into the new school year. So he really he had no plan B. Thank you, Mark Traeger, New York City Councilman from New York there on the school closures. Staying on uh, the subject of New York City, would you take a rapid COVID test before sitting down for dinner and a glass of wine? One New York City restaurant will soon require diners to take a nasal swab in addition to a questionnaire and a temperature check. It's the, it's the nasal swab thing. <laughs> I don't know, right before dinner, <laughs> That's really? a deterrent. Yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> uh, Steve Scott, WCBS, talks to Michael Dorff, CEO and founder of City Winery in NYC. Mr. Dorff, we appreciate you joining us. This pilot program begins Tuesday. Tell us how it will work. Well, you'll show up. You'll be given a, a questionnaire and a temperature check. And then you'll be given a a shallow nasal swab, which um, so it's not the deep one, but it gets enough um, saliva in order to do the rapid test. It's an antigen test. It'll be administered by a, a certified practitioner. While you wait to 10 to 12 minutes, you'll be handed a glass of bubbles from City Winery, so you can at least enjoy the wait while sipping, but you're outside of our premises. When you get a negative result, we will contact you by by mobile phone, which will be basically right outside of our facility, and then you're allowed in. All of the normal practices that we're doing, the protocols of mask wearing, unless you're seated and eating, um, the the our staff always being masked. Um, all of those will be done, but we wanted to create a bubble so that people could feel that we were doing every single thing we could to keep them safe. As you know, the city's uh, schools closing yesterday and the, and the sort of indications from the, the governor's office and the mayor that a good chance we're going to be moving towards full indoor dining closures soon, which we all are, are, are so desperate to stay open, but we want to be safe. City Winery is the first restaurant of which I'm aware trying something like this. Do you think that this is an idea whose time has come and, and we may see other establishments give it a try? I hope so. I mean, where I, it's expensive right now, and, and we're lucky we opened a new you know, concert hall at 15th Street and the West Side Highway in Hudson River Park, and so we have a lot of space in order to have dining indoors. Um, and so smaller restaurants with smaller capacities this is an investment that's hard. We're hearing that there's going to be much cheaper rapid testing uh, coming in the, in, into the early part of the year, and hopefully that'll come fast enough that more restaurants will, will do this. But without creating a bubble every single night, there's no other way to, to really ensure you know, pure comfort and, and the psychological safety net that customers want. And that's you know, Danny Myers 
enlightened hospitality is all about creating as incredible a, a, a comfortable homey atmosphere for for your guests and i really you know aspire to 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 emulate that philosophy and and i think a, a rapid test at the door uh, achieves that we just got to get the pricing down you know maybe this you know the state or city could support it maybe insurance companies who have not given us any business interruption insurance you know coverage or and they keep charging us high liability you know i don't want to complain but they could be somebody who could step in and and help us it would be great if we could get some financial support for for trying this but i think new york city restaurants could do this and if we could do it cheaply i think it's something people would really like you must be confident in the accuracy of these tests, if you're going to go this far mm-hmm. and then use it as the line that people need to cross to enter your establishment? Well, we're still going to keep every single protocol that we currently have, right? Safety uh, distancing between tables. We have eight feet between tables. You still have to wear a mask when you come in and, and, and when you go to the bathroom. So everything that is currently the protocol we're doing, we're just adding this on top of it. So it's only, you know, incrementally more safe. We're not relying, you know, it, the, 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 the results say that they're 99% accurate on the negativity rate and there's 90% on the false positives. So it's, it's not perfect. And, th- and that's not our world. We're relying on the testing and the experts, you know, to, to, to create just more safety for our guests. And there's, so there's nothing more we can do. We're not the creator of the test. You know, we're using whatever technology is being given to us. It's being administered by certified practitioners. So we're doing everything we can do. Uh, and, and hopefully this just provides as much safety as we can current is state of the art. You can find us on the radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. But that last story really lends credence to that whole thing about up your nose. Know,